I know a number of you have gardens. Um, let's, let's see how well you know your plants. Here's the question. What do grapes, tomatoes, cucumbers, eggplant, bananas, and chili peppers all have in common? By their botanical definition, they're all berries. And this is how you define one. Fleshy fruit without a stone that is produced by a single flower containing one ovary. And now you know. Among the berries, viticulture is the scientific study of growing grapes. And that study goes back a very long way. After stepping off the ark following the flood, Scripture informs us that Noah brought some familiarity with him into the new world. Genesis chapter 9, verse 20 says, Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. Every generation since then has to one degree or another pursued viticulture, the study of grapes. You may or may not know, probably don't know, that there are some 8,000 types of grapes within some 60 different species worldwide. They're very, very common. Italy, France, and the United States produce the majority of the world's grapes. And of all grapes produced, 71% are used to make wine. 27% are consumed as table grapes, grape jelly, grape juice, and the like. And 2% are dried and enjoyed as raisins. The average person consumes 8 pounds of grapes a year. And now you know. The grapevine and its fruit are very common symbols around the globe and have been for millennia, both literally and figuratively. Last week I pointed out that the vine is a very familiar reference in the Old Testament to Israel. After the synagogue, or I'm sorry, after the exile, Within the synagogue, when they were under, when an individual synagogue was under construction, they often built a mosaic floor and it was decorated with the images of grapes. The Second Temple, massively enlarged by Herod the Great, prominently featured images of the vine and its fruit on the entrance pillars. During the intertestamental time, the vine was commonly used as a symbol of Messiah. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, he boldly announces, John chapter 15, verse 1, I am the true vine. 
Israel was to anticipate. They were to be a type of Christ, but they failed miserably. Jesus, in contrast, is the true vine. He's the real deal. He's, he's the genuine, the authentic. And so he continued in the widely popular 15th chapter of John's Gospel. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Now, contextually, Jesus spoke these words to his men after their final meal together, just hours prior to his execution. There were 11 there. Judas Iscariot, of course, was, was not present And these 11 were the ones that were soon to be commissioned by Jesus as his apostles, that is, his sent ones. These were genuinely redeemed men. And he says of them in verse 3 of our text that they are already clean. That is, they were already redeemed already justified, already part of God's family. Now, at the forefront of this vine imagery, uh, Jesus places the divine expectation of fruitfulness. And he tells us that there are two kinds of branches. There are fruitful branches, and there are fruitless branches branches. It's no surprise that those that are outside of Christ are fruitless branches. They cannot produce the kind of fruit that is pleasing to the Lord. Neither should it be surprising that those who are connected to Christ in a justified, saving, uh, redemptive way Those are fruitful branches, and fruit is expected to be born on those branches. Now, I know that the the metaphor breaks down here a, a little bit, but I think Jesus is here cautioning his men prior to their commissioning that there may be those that will appear to be branches, appear to be attached to the vine, and yet are not. And they are fruitless branches, like Judas Iscariot, 
Previously, Jesus had had used other images to describe the same kind of phenomenon when there are those that are attendant to the vine um, or appear to be attached to the vine. They may even appear to, to bear fruit, but on close examination, it's just plastic fruit glued to their shirts. Jesus speaks of weeds among the wheat, foolish virgins alongside the wise, goats among the sheep, um, rocky soil that is right next to good soil. But returning to this particular image in John 15, Jesus is communicating the truth that the vine grower, the vine dresser, the father, he is interested in fruit production. Verse 2, he wants more fruit. Verse 5, he is looking for much fruit. So those connected to Christ in a saving, redemptive way must be, by definition, fruit bearers. There may not be an abundance of fruit. There may not be um, a county fair quality fruit. But a person who is genuinely saved will, must, bear fruit. And so there's, there's, there's this, this distinction here in, in John 15 uh, between Christian and non-Christian, between those that are cleansed and those that are not. Uh, those that produce more fruit, much fruit, and those who produce none. It's all about the fruit. The, the sine qua non of fruitfulness is abiding. And that's the focal point of our discussion this morning. Sine qua non, Latin phrase meaning without which not, points to the essential, the necessary, the required condition for fruitfulness. The Father is all about the fruit, and here is how a branch produces fruit. It has to abide in the vine. Listen to um, testimony of Scripture and and God's urgent um, requirement for fruitfulness. John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. 2 Peter chapter 1. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful 
in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jeremiah 17. Verse 7. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes. By its leaves, but its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. It's all about fruit. We learn in verse 2, as we talked about last week, the vine dresser, the father, does two things to fruit-bearing branches. He purges them, and, I'm sorry, he, he does these two things to um, um, all these branches. If they are unproductive, he will purge them. If they are productive, they will be pruned. The word prune, as we talked about last week, literally means to clean. And uh, that verb is, is repeated in uh, verse 3. Um, we need to step away from the metaphor for just a moment. The Father cleans the believer from any dirt of unrepentant sin, maybe, and he cuts away from the believer any sucker growth, anything that would seek to distract him from the main objective of producing fruit. He cuts away those kinds of distractions. Now, um, a number of weeks ago, um, matter of fact, a number of months ago, I described what believing in Christ entails. So many people are, are confused and mistaken, thinking that because they raised their hand, because they walked forward at a, an evangelistic meeting and said, I believe in, in, uh, in God or I believe in Jesus, they, they, they think that that is sufficient um, to secure their place in heaven and, and secure their salvation. Well, those, those certainly may be included in a, a, a true believer's testimony, but, but faith, believing, redemption is, it, it certainly includes those things, but, but, but it, is, it is more than that. To believe in Christ involves my mind and my heart and my will. A number of months ago, I, I, I gave you for your, uh, your consideration uh, uh, an acronym, CAT, C-A-T, in an attempt to capture what the Bible describes as saving, redeeming faith. C-A-T, content, affirmation, trust. Those are the three elements of biblical faith. Content, um, 
I, I, there, there are certain things I, I must know in order to be saved. I need to know that God is a holy God. I need to know that man is sinful. I am sinful. I need to know that, that Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. Affirmation. I need to affirm that what the Bible says about this content, God, man, Jesus, I, I, I need to affirm that it is true and necessary for my life. Trust. It's, it's, it's not adequate to simply say, oh, I believe that there is a God, or I believe in Jesus, or I believe in the Bible. Uh, those, are, those are good things. Saving, redeeming faith, trusts, puts our confidence, our hope in this God, in this Jesus who has provided for man's desperate need. All right, the next step beyond believing is abiding. And just as the letter D follows the letter C as in cat, so um, um, abiding might be described by these three Ds. Uh, Think of uh, three-dimensional. Believing is how I begin the Christian life. Abiding is how I continue in the Christian life. And it has to do with this. Devotion, dependence, discipline. Again, involving my heart, my mind first, and then my heart and my will. Devotion describes my abiding in Christ with my mind. Dependence describes my abiding in Christ with my heart. Discipline describes my abiding in Christ with my will. Point number one. Look again at verse four. The beginning of uh, that verse, Jesus, uh, Jesus commands us, abide in me and I in you. Now, just a, just a few sentences earlier, Jesus had stated, chapter 14, verse 20, you and me and I in you. Both statements affirm the same amazing reality. Yeah, centuries ago when Bible preachers uh, used Latin extensively, they, they called this the unio mystica, the mystical union of the creator and the creature, his people. Holy God chooses to have a relationship with unholy man. That is absolutely astonishing. His devotion to his people is, is, is unparalleled. It is amazing. As the succession of leadership passed from Moses to Joshua, the Lord promised his new general, listen, Joshua chapter 1, just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you nor forsake you. And now in Christ, it is revealed that that same promise extends to 
all of his chosen ones. Hebrews chapter 13, Jesus says of himself, says himself, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. This kind of devotion Jesus has with his redeemed ones. And the same devotion is to be replicated, reproduced in his redeemed ones toward him. Abide in me, I in you. You in me, I in you. Puritan pastor John Owen wrote this. Love begets a likeness between the mind loving and the object loved. A mind filled with the love of Christ as crucified will be changed into his image and likeness. And we will reflect the same kind of devotion he has toward us. As he abides in us, so we abide in him. In his book, uh, The Fruitful Life, Jerry Bridges similarly wrote, God is at the center of the believer's thoughts. His most ordinary duties are done with an eye to God's glory. Big things, little things, all things. God's people are devoted to him, seeking earnestly his glory. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. When I abide in Christ, mentally I am devoting myself to him and to his glory. Paul wrote to the uh, Colossians, chapter 3, If you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Any separation from God, even for a moment, yields no fruit. And the vine dresser is all about what? He's all about the fruit. So, Colossians chapter 3, keep seeking, keep setting your mind, focus your attention on, devote yourself mentally to the pursuit of Christ and his glory. That verb at the beginning of verse 4, abide in me, it's in the imperative mood. It's a command. It's a non-negotiable. I must abide. The sine qua non of fruitfulness is abiding in Christ. And it begins with my mind. Think about this statement. Christ is not valued at all unless... He is valued 
above all. Let me say that again. Christ is not valued at all unless he is valued above all. This week as I was pawing through my files, I unearthed a, uh, uh, some thoughts that I had scribbled down 25 years ago. I'll begin with the letter S. I guess I've been stuck to, uh, to that uh, method of, of uh, preaching and teaching for a long time. I, I came up with six words, all beginning with the letter of S, that, that are common fleshly distractions that needlessly steal strength from my devotion to Christ. Maybe this list will help identify some of those, those, those sucker growths that need to be removed, excised, cut away, that we might bear more fruit, much fruit, for the glory of the King. Here are the six. Sex, significance, success, silver, survival, and satisfaction. Let me go back to the beginning of the list. Sex. When I chase after the thrill, the intimacy, outside of the confines of marriage, I am putting energies in ways that are distracting my ability to produce fruit. Significance. Same thing is true when I am self-absorbed and I am promoting myself. Success. When I chase after power, when I chase after position, silver. When I chase after material gain or advancement, I am putting out uh, suckers that distract my, uh, distract me away from my single-minded devotion to Christ. Survival. When I fight to hang on to what I've accumulated, my mind is in the wrong place. Or satisfaction. When, I'm, when I am content with my fleshly desires. May the Father, our, our heavenly vine dresser, prune these kinds of things away so that we might have an undistracted focus, devotion to him who is the true vine. In a word to the unmarried, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, this I say to your benefit, to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. In his next canonized letter to that church, Paul warned them, 2 Corinthians 11. I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. So, abiding in Christ begins, point number one, in the mind. 
devoting myself to him and his glory. Second page of your notes. Point number two. Dependence. We will not manifest the fruit of God. We will not produce fruit unless we are living in a dependent relationship to the vine. Wholehearted dependence upon the Savior. This is not normal. It should be normal. It must become normal. But we have this antipathy. We have this allergic reaction to needing to stay in a dependent relationship with our Lord. Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle knew about that allergic reaction we have. He wrote this, We do not love to learn that we can do nothing without Christ. Nope, we don't love that. But fruitfulness will only be found when we are in a dependent relationship with him. Listen to what uh, C.S. Lewis said in his uh, well-known book, Mere Christianity. Quote, A car is made to run on gasoline. Well, at least old school cars were. And it would not run properly on anything else. Now, now God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn, or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is no good asking God to make us happy in our own way. God cannot give us a happiness and a peace apart from himself because it's not there. There is no such thing. I want you to turn over to um, Psalm 119. Find verse 33. Ezra wrote this, and I want you to particularly take note of the verbs at the beginning of each verse. I'm going to read verses 33 through 37. Listen. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall observe it to the end. Give me understanding that I might observe your law and keep it with all my heart. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways. Look back at those, those verbs at the beginning of each of those verses. Teach me. Give me understanding. Make me walk. Incline my heart. Turn away my eyes. Revive me. I am dependent upon God in oh so many ways. And I cannot produce fruit to the glory of God for the benefit of the kingdom unless I abide in the vine. I am dependent upon what the vine 
contributes to me. Now, Jesus warns of judgment for, for those that do not have this uh, abiding connection with the vine. Look, look in our text, verse 6 of chapter 15. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Gluing plastic fruit to your shirt is no substitute for the real thing. Judgment aside here for a moment. If fruitfulness, more fruit, much fruit, is the primary objective, it's quite obvious that separation from the root will guarantee the inability to produce fruit. I must be devoted and dependent upon the vine in order to produce fruit. My heart, my mind are engaged in seeking and depending on the Lord. Now I want you to listen to, uh, to, to a positive example of, of fruit-bearing dependence. This, this is a, a, a prayer recorded in the prayer journal of one of our national leaders. Quote, Almighty God, I yield thee humble and hearty thanks that thou hast preserved me from the danger of the night past and brought me to the light of the day and the comforts thereof, a day which is consecrated to thine own service for thine own honor. Let my heart, therefore, gracious God, be so affected with the glory and majesty of it that I may not do mine own works, but wait on thee and discharge those weighty duties thou requirest of me. Give me grace to hear thee calling on me in thy... Uh, give me grace to hear thee calling on me in thy word that I may be wisdom, righteousness, reconciliation, and peace to the saving of the soul in the day of the Lord Jesus. Grant that I might hear it with reverence, receive it with meekness, mingle it with faith, and that it may accomplish in me, gracious God, the good work for which thou hast sent it. Bless my family, kindred, friends, and country, be our God and our guide this day and forever for his sake, who laid down in the grave and arose again for us. Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. So wrote George Washington, first president of these United States. Abiding in Christ. First, involves the mind by devotion. Secondly, involves the uh, heart by dependence. Third, it involves the will by my discipline. Look back at our text, verse, verse 5. Jesus presses his men. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. 
Abiding in Christ is an habitual act of devotion, an habitual act of dependence, an habitual act of discipline. Heart, mind, will. There's an expectation here, a command, a demand of Christ that is necessary, required, essential in our sanctification. It's not optional. Our Father, the fine dresser, will do all that is necessary that we might bear more fruit, much fruit. How much more profitable and less painful it will be for me to discipline my will to do His will. Think about it this way. I can't live the way I used to live because I'm not the person I used to be. What I do is a reflection of who I am, and who I am reveals what I do. There is a blending together of my character and my conduct. When I am grafted onto the new vine, when I am redeemed, born from above, I am given a new nature, a new, a new ability to genuinely please God. But I will still continue to battle with the fleshly habits of my own nature. So it, it, it is incumbent upon me to discipline my character that it be reflected in my content, conduct as that which is consistent with our Lord and his work, um, his love in my life. Listen, listen to Paul's words to the church in Rome. I mean, uh, Romans chapter 6, if you'd like to follow along with me. Chapter 6, verse 4. We have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts, 
And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. If I allow sin to reign in my members, I train myself unto wickedness. But he who abides in Christ trains himself, disciplines himself unto righteousness. Last week in the context of describing the kind of fruit in which God delights, uh, the fruit of praise, the fruit of goodness, uh, the, um, uh, the fruit of uh, righteousness, uh, the, the fruit of Christ-likeness. I, I, I referred to Hebrews 12. I uh, refer, there, refer you there to that verse again in chapter 12, verse 11. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The word translated trained in that verse is the Greek word gumnazo, from which we get our English word gymnasium. It denotes, quote, vigorous exercise. The word appears four times in the New Testament, um, another time it, it appears in uh, uh, Peter's second letter where he describes false teachers of those who have, as those who have trained themselves in greed. They, they were so skilled, so um, disciplined that they became experts in that particular form of unrighteousness. Here's the other two places where that particular Greek word gumnazo shows up in the scriptures, also in uh, Hebrews chapter 5. Solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained, there's a word, trained to discern good and evil. Paul exhorted Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, discipline yourself, there's the word, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. To abide means that I am disciplining myself, training myself in my will to stay connected to Christ. One comedian quipped, My wife and I have a perfect understanding. I don't try to run her life, and I don't try to run mine either. To our own demise. In his book, um, Developing the Leader Within You, John Maxwell wrote, quote, Perhaps the most valuable result of all education is the ability to make yourself do the thing you have to do. When it ought to be done, whether you like it or not. It is the first lesson that ought to be learned. And however early a man's training begins, it is probably the last lesson that he learns thoroughly. In the same volume, Maxwell writes, 
When we are foolish, we want to conquer the world. When we are wise, we want to conquer ourselves. There is a discipline of my will in abiding in Christ. So if, if, if I am going to be um, productive in my Christian life, if it will profit me, profit uh, the people around me, um, honor the Lord, I must abide in Christ. It involves three things, at least these three things. These are the three Ds, the, the three dimensions of my Christian life. Devotion, dependence, discipline. Grapes are common throughout the entire world. Real Christians who bear this kind of fruit, is that common? Is that common in your life? Scripture that was read earlier this morning in our, here in our worship um, from uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, Paul exhorts us to examine ourselves, take a very close look at our life, our character, our conduct. Are we indeed devoted to the Master, dependent upon the Master, disciplining ourselves to follow the Master? Do other people see it by your character, by your conduct? Do others see the uncommon nature of your life in Christ? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us to allow us to see the scriptures and understand them with clarity and with depth. As we look at our, our own soul, cause us to examine ourselves. Are we indeed in the faith? Is fruit evidenced in our life? Pray it in the name of him who is the vine. Amen.